want to take you to a passage of scripture. If you are not acquainted with the Bible, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Luke is a Gentile doctor. He, I think I'm right in saying, is the only non-Jew to have written weightedly in the scriptures. And uh, he's a doctor, so he's quite scientific. He's quite uh, detail-orientated, as I'm <laughs> grateful that doctors are. And uh, so he affords us an incredible insight that some of the other authors don't. So if you want to grab your Bibles with me, I'm going to go to Acts in the very first chapter. But I don't want to start at verse 1. I want to start at verse 12. Acts chapter 1 at verse 12. And then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. It's actually beautiful. I have been there. A Sabbath day walked from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James. Remember, Peter was the fisherman. Remember John and James were the two brothers who were crazy and calamitous. They were called the sons of thunder. It was their mother who went to Jesus and said, Hey, bro, can they sit at your right-hand side? Like, you really like them, don't you? Love the mom getting involved in the eternal sacred things. That's what your moms do, don't you? Is that what you do? You get involved with things. When they arrived, they went... I've, I've read that. Um... And Andrew, and, and Philip, and Thomas, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and they all joined together. And they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the woman. Now remember, this is a rad. Women did not pray with men. The, the synagogue had the men sit one side, the woman sat another side. They never had the same rabbi. The rabbi never taught women, because we know that women can't be taught. Well, that was the thinking of the day. You couldn't even have a woman testify in a court of law because she's so emotional, we're not sure that we could really trust her testament. Jesus revolutionized you ladies. He had you come close. He had the woman, Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering 120, maybe a little bit more than this, and he said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. And then verse 20b, in case we get there, may another take his place of leadership. This is a very interesting little moment in the God story. Any knowledge of it will tell you that uh, the earlier part of the verse is the last time Jesus is with them. It's a very poignant time. It's a, it's a pregnant moment full of content and substance. My mentor died twice, they resuscitated him, he had liver condition. But the last time before he moved to Australia to get treatment, he, his, his big belly because of the liver complications, and, and, and he spoke hesitantly, a few words, and he breathed few more words. I lent in. I wanted to get every single word he had to say to me. Now, this was that same moment. The final words are super weighted. Jesus says, I've got to go. But the Holy Spirit will come and you can get power to be my storytellers. My witnesses. It's not a fancy word. It just means a storyteller. You don't have to be an expert on all matters apologetics or science or philosophy or politics 
Never find yourself under pressure trying to feel obligated to defend this great faith. Tell your story. Remember the blind man? Jesus touched and healed and the Pharisees were furious and they came and sought him out and can't believe they said to his dad and mom that Jesus did this to this guy. And she said, oh, we don't know, said the parents. Ask him. He said, dude, I don't know. Once I was blind, but now I see. That's all you've got to tell. Once I was blind, and now I see. That's the storytelling component in which the Holy Spirit comes on us and we are taken in this great, grandiose, global gospel adventure, ladies and gentlemen. Every one of us. You may be the skulkiest, sulkiest, grumpiest Christian in the world. And you can still be part of this great global gospel adventure. People say to me, Chris, you know, I, I, Christianity is so boring. <coughs> Imagine if you're 19 or 20 or 21, you're a young lady, and you've got a boyfriend. And he wants to kiss and cuddle, you know, a little bit of action, and then disappears. I don't think that's very satisfying, is it? I don't think you, yeah, sit down with your mom over a cup of coffee. This is it. This is Mr. Right. Oh, why is it Mr. Well, he kisses on a Friday, and then he got hanged up with his mates, and I don't know when he's visiting again, and he's never kind, and he never brings me gifts, and, um, Eventually you'll be saying, well, maybe it's not really as cool as I thought it was going to be. Of course it isn't. Because the weight and wattage of a life well lived is one of commitment and high buy-in. And Christianity becomes boring when we lose the passion of an invested journey with Jesus who has captivated my heart. Meryl and I have just had three months of sabbatical. We came back our first ever in 40 years of ministry. And I came back and people said, Chris, what was it like? What happened? Well, I can tell you about the beaches in Mauritius. I can tell you about our house that we stepped from the patio onto white sand. And it was cool and it was amazing. And the Domo Cathedral in Florence, all of it. But when I tell you what was the most exquisite thing, was coming away feeling Jesus inviting me into intimacy. Most compelling thing. Draw in. Come. Walk with me. Walk with me a while. Good things to say. This passage, dear friends, is a remarkable passage because it's an in-between moment. You've got Jesus there, the first part of Acts chapter 1. Think about it for a moment. Jesus in person. They didn't bath all the time, so he was probably slightly sweaty. Clothes not washed all the time. But that unique fragrance. <sighs> Got him. It's here. And then he says, it's better for you that I go. Now, if I had written the story, what would I have done? Jesus goes up. The Holy Spirit comes down. High five. See you later as the Spirit of God comes down. But for some obscure reason, there is a moment. There are these days in which Jesus is not there, the Spirit of God hasn't come, and they're huddled together in the upper room, fearful, I argue, nervous, uncertain, vulnerable. I don't know what's next. I wonder if Peter didn't sit there saying, man, I don't know if this is worth it. I left my cool business, and I'm sitting in an upper room, and there's no sign of God anywhere. He's not even talking to us. Oh, James and John said, no, 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 you, dude, you don't think. We left our pops. We left there 
and we left dad's business to come and follow him and now he's gone what do you think we feel like mary says hang on boys i carried him all right you want to want you want to up me i carried him i gave birth to him in a barn jesus brother said well you guys are all nuts we gave up everything. We laughed at him, then we believed him, and now what? It's a moment of heightened vulnerability and uncertainty. God spoke, but God is not speaking. Now, what do I do in those moments? This passage tells us, at least helps us along the way. Are you with me? All right, have I got you off your cell phones? No. All right, I'm more compelling than TikTok? <laughs> well, Jesus is, I'm not sure. Okay, number one. I think in those moments of uncertainty where God spoke, but He's not speaking now, we go back to the last time He spoke. What did the apostles do? It says it right here. From uh, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives. Why did they go there? Because the last time Jesus spoke, He said, wait in Jerusalem. And what is absolutely imperative for us to understand, dear friends, is that when God is currently silent, it means we can live off what He... Sorry, the first time we left our, our son at home and we went on a ministry trip or whatever, Mama Bear, pizzas in the oven, cooked food there for him just to put it in the microwave, you know, like mom and dad aren't here, cool, I got the house to myself, and mom left me food. This is an and mom left me food moment. They went to Jerusalem because Jesus said, wait there, there's food in the fridge. I'm coming. But into that moment, dear friends, comes this incredible sense of get yourself ready. The new is coming. I sat with someone recently having coffee and she sat with me. She's in passion. She said, God's called me to the Muslim world. Okay. So you're obviously learning Arabic. No, uh, no. And so what are you going to do in the Muslim? Regenerative agriculture. That's what I'm going to do. So I said, have you ever been on a regenerative agriculture farm? No. But you want people, you want to raise money for people to take you to a place, the language you don't speak, to do a job you've never done? Yeah. See, Jesus tells the story in Matthew 25. And he said there were 10 virgins. And the master said, I'm coming back. And what happened in that interim, five of the virgins filled their flasks and five did not. What is God's next assignment for you? Do you have any idea? Is it across the country? Is it single getting married? Is it going off to college? The kids are leaving home. What are you going to do when you're my age? Curl up and die and watch NFL and... USC get beat? Is that, is that what you're going to do? Is that your life? Is that why God has retired you to ultra extraordinary boredom? That the great week's excitement is clear in the gutters. Is that what Jesus saved you for? What happens in this passage, dear friends, is the apostles go back to where God last spoke. The foolish virgins did not fill their flasks. The wise was for virgins. virgins. Virgin, virgins, they filled their flask in rich anticipation. When you come, Jesus, we will be ready. Wherever, whenever, to whoever. 
Would you be okay if God surprised you? We were in Italy on our, on our um, sabbatical. Beautiful. I mean, we were overwhelmed by beauty. Cathedral after cathedral, statue. I could have just stood at Michelangelo's David and spent hours just working my way around. I cannot believe a man can do that. Jesus, do you want me to come to Italy? Do you want me to come look at So I thought, what's the condition of the church in Italy? So we did two things. We went to a Catholic Mass. Second time ever. Beryl, who doesn't speak a word of Italian, convinced me that the preacher was speaking about the Father's love. God bless you, love. I'm glad you understood, because I didn't. And then I googled Hillsong Florence. Big Hillsong. Global Hillsong. Mega Church Hillsong. Hi. We're Hillsong Florence. We're a small group meeting in the house. But you're welcome to join us. I preached this story in Pretoria, South Africa. A couple sat over there and wept the whole way through my message. And I didn't even think I preached that badly. <laughs> they had been wrestling with God whether they should move to Italy or not. The next morning I said, saw him at a coffee shop making plans to move to Italy. What about you? God spoke, he's silent, but I'm ready, ready, my flask is ready for God to use me. Wherever, whenever, however. Secondly, Verse 14a says, and they all joined together. Dana, my daughter, and I am a proud pops, is preaching on Thursday night. You will love her. But she found an article from the University of Portland that was sent to all the foreign students. Now, this is not a Christian institution, and so they're doing nothing but explain us, Americans, to the foreign students. Point number one. In order to understand Americans, they write. The most important thing to understand about US Americans, as opposed to Bolivian Americans, you know what that means, is, their, is probably their devotion to individualism. They have been trained from early in their lives to consider themselves separate individuals who are responsible for their own stations in life and their own destinies. Me. It's I. I determine my future. They have not been trained, the University of Portland says, to see themselves as members of a close-knit, tightly independent, interdependent family, religious group, tribe, nation, or other group. They have not been trained to see themselves as a close-knit, Tightly interdependent family, religious group, tribe, nation, or other group. Now, ladies and gentlemen, from that, if that is true, you and me, to this, all these years, he says, were in one accord. The Amplified says, all these were of one mind and one purpose. How many of you know when you get married, you forfeit some things? My marriage would be perfect if Beryl has every opinion I have, every perception I have, and does everything I want to do. Yesterday she was lying in a hammock reading a fantasy novel. I, on the other hand, was preparing for our meeting tonight and watching 
a little bit of blue cup right here. Hammer, if it's a sci-fi book, blue cup rugby, and the scripture. You see, if you become a one accord, it means I give something up. And may I ask, what is it you are prepared to give up to be part of a tightly knit, dependent community? The message says they agreed they would end this for good completely together. I want to tell you about George Tyree. When I moved here from South Africa, and if you understand any of the politics and history, you'll understand what I'm about to say. I said, Lord, please give me a black friend. George Tyree appeared. Ex-football player, big, big lad. Remarkable man. Every time Meryl and I went on a ministry trip, we would go to Meryl. I didn't know this until years later. Go to Meryl and say, Meryl, I just want you to know I got your kiss. And he meant it because I saw him and now was his time away. We had a lot of young who kissed. Newport Beach and there was a shore break with a rip current out. George hated the water and hated swimming. And the shore break hit the kids and started sucking them out. And this man ran into the water to save kids. He did not care for his own well-being, but for the well-being of those kids. He came to me every time. He said, Chris, while you're on the road, don't worry. This church would be fine. We were had just landed in South Africa to go and preach there when I got a message from Priscilla's wife. Please call me any time. I looked at the watch, it was 2 o'clock LA time, I thought, well, she said any time I called, she picked up the phone instantly, she said, Chris, George is dying. I said, hang on, I saw him two days ago. It took us two days to get here. She said he got aggressive leukemia, he's dying. I said, I'm coming home now. And we did. George died. Leaving behind a nine-year-old, seven-year-old, five-year-old, three-year-old, and a brand new boy. You're so proud of this boy. But the punch to the story is this, that he would always sit with his kids and say to his kids, bear in mind he's a black man who has suffered prejudice as most people of minority groupings have. But he always said to his kids, no matter what happens, run to the church. No matter what happens, no matter who says what to you, Run to the church. There is your safety. There is your community. There is your partnership. Run to the church. What does the individualism say? I'll fix myself and then I'll be back. It doesn't ever say that anywhere in the Bible. George died on the Thursday, I think. Right, my love? Friday. Sunday morning. It's all raw. Priscilla, four kids at home cannot get out of bed to come to church, come to the community. And Camille, whom I love dearly, feisty little thing, climbed on the bed and said, Mom, we're going to church today. Priscilla said, kiddos, I don't think I can face it. And Camille looked her mom in the face and said, Mom, but Dad said, no matter what happens, run to the church. They arrived late. I was preaching. I watched them arrive. Sat over there. 
I didn't tell this part of the story in the first gathering, but I was remember just sitting over there. You know what happened spontaneously? Different men in the community owned one of the kids. Brendan, that comes to mind, owned Camille, meaning he was at every game she played. Every event that happened at school, he would be there. So it was true of every one of the kids. Why? Because you run to the church. Jesus was there. The Holy Spirit was not yet there. They were vulnerable, uncertain, unclear, full of fear, probably traumatized by it all. But they were all together in one accord. In between moments, it's not where we isolate and alienate ourselves behind Netflix and a glass of wine. It's where we push ourselves into holy community and let that be our safe place. I have been where you are. I got sued, the eldership did, by two disgruntled groups in the church. I lay, I remember lying on the floor in my bathroom, forgive the crassness, naked. I couldn't even get up and get dressed. I watched the sun from bright go dark on me as I lay there and I just said, Jesus, I have nothing but you. I have nothing but you. And I watched community rally into a single unity. Go back to his last instruction. Run at the church. Not away from it. Thirdly, you with me? Yeah. All right, thank you. They were constantly in prayer. They were constantly in prayer. Verse 14b. I want to invite you on a maturing. Isn't that funny? I, I love all your kids. I must say, I'm a little gaga eyed. The grandpa and me goes nuts. And uh, isn't it amazing how excited we get when our kids or our grandkids, in this case, say another word? And we're all proud. My grandkids, I don't know, whatever, seven months and they can speak sentences in five languages. I am so proud. See, why is it? Because we celebrate maturing. We celebrate increased vocabulary. We celebrate communion and community. And we speak with each other. And the invitation to prayer, they constantly pray different. And can I implore you, hopefully in a fatherly way, that you grow in your prayer life. A lot of the literature that's going around is a reflective, meditative, devotional prayer life. I go into prayer meeting after prayer meeting, and everyone's sitting. Well, it's good for listening. It's good for waiting. Get your little journal out. I'm listening. God, speak to me. But there is a higher level of prayer, and that's sustained petition. Remember the widow and she knocked at the judge's door. Get away! Jesus said, if he who is evil would listen, how much more your heavenly father? There is a level of sustained petition where we go before him with whatever it may be and see him answer those prayers. And then there's a third level called intercession. 
And intercession, I think, is even a, because it's so costly. When we intercede, you are exhausted at the end, dear friend. And intercession is a little bit like giving birth. It says of Elijah that when he was praying, I don't know if you remember the story, even at kind of Sunday school they teach it. There's a famine. And Elijah is going to pray rain in. And he doesn't say, oh God, can you send some rain? You know, it's really dry in Central California. Mm, we're not going to have a good vintage this year. The wine's not going to be that good. Or, he gets on his haunches in the childbearing position of old. And he says to his servant, while he prays, go on the hill and see if there's a cloud coming. While he's doing that, he is interceding, standing in the gap. The, the, the servant comes back and he says, nope, nothing. Keeps going. Keeps going. The seventh time the servant comes back and says, There is a cloud the size of a man's fist. Elijah says, Buddy, pull up your robes. You better stop running. There's a storm coming. There is a level of intercession. We're crying out to God for Israel and Gaza. There is a level of intercession where the burden of prayer comes upon us that we groan like the woman in childbirth. You can't stop midway. You can't say to the baby, sorry, I'm really tired right now. Would you just stay, hang around a little bit? You know, I just got, I just want to go and get a, a coffee, a craft coffee, you know, from my, no, you, the baby said, I'm coming. And so there is a deep groaning that we can't always control as we cry out to God for the life that is about to break through. And I want to invite you to be hungry enough to learn to pray that way. Standing in the gap on behalf of others. How do I know, you may ask. Well, South Africa was a civil war. We saw people, tires put over their head, gas poured over them as traitors to the system, to the man, and then set alight. This wasn't the honor of Jesus, would you hear about that? Two more minutes. Jesus, would you hear about that? All my prayer meetings. Not just us, Methodists, Anglicans, Pentecostals. Would you come and heal our land? Would you come and heal our land? It's burning. A little personal note. I'm really grieving about our current political system, but it's not that. We expect that because they're sinful people. I'm grieving by the prayerlessness of the church. Well, it's going to be Trump. Nah, it's going to be Biden. This is where we shape it. Cloud the size of a man's fist. Lastly, thank you for being so gracious. It says in verses, verse uh, one I read, 20b, it says another will take his place of leadership. How many of you enjoy uh, Band of Brothers? Come on, ladies, you can acknowledge it if you are. I don't mind. You can say, yeah, I just finished watching it again. A guy in our community has never complimented me once on preaching. Mind you, he's not there that often. But it's the only time he said, Chris, I also watch the Band of Brothers. Every year I watch it. I've been watching it for six years now. But in that, you know there is that battlefield promotion. In the heat of battle, a major gets killed, a captain, a staff sergeant gets killed, and someone junior is ready, sent into that position because there are so many people 
taken out. Now, what is happening here? It's a battlefield promotion. Matthias isn't one of the 12, but he has postured himself in readiness. I'll explain it quickly and we're done. But he postures himself and God the Holy Spirit says, this is the man for this moment. He, imagine feeling he's like the 13th man. He was there or thereabouts, but he was never part of the 12. But he postured himself. How did he posture himself? Very quickly, number one, it says that um, he had been with Jesus. When I was a little kid, my dad worked construction. We'd often be away building some warehouse in some godforsaken place. And I remember I tiptoed through to, to, to the laundry bag and I grabbed his smelly shirt. Because, you know, he wasn't an accountant. And, and I put that on my pillow and it's because it was, okay, it's going to be okay. Kind of, I got dad with me. The marvel of the battlefield promoted leader is one who has been with Jesus. One who has had his fragrance. Remember when they poured their years worth of fragrance over him? And as I'm close to him, that fragrance comes on me. Oh, I want to have a cup of coffee and someone leaves him. I want to have Jesus like us. I want that Jesus. I want to smell the perfume of having been with that Jesus. He'd been with Jesus. When I came back from sabbatical, one of the girls in our church has been through a rough time, was sexually abused when she was young, blah, 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 blah. And as I walked in, I looked in her face and it was radiant. I said to her, and I won't mention her name, I said, where has the old doctor gone? Beautiful eyes. She just went, she said, Chris, I've been with Jesus. My dear friends, I don't know where you are and I don't know your future. But there is nothing more compelling than looking into the eyes of a human being just like the rest of us and seeing Jesus. Errol and I had a really big fight last Saturday or Saturday before I think. It's horrible. And when we were done, we looked at each other and we were tender. You know what it's like. You've been there, I'm sure. Don't, don't look so piously at me. You've been there. You, you know what I'm talking about. We said, yeah, we have to break bread, don't we? And the only bread we could find is not sweet, delicious Hawaiian bread. We had sprouted multi-grain. <laughs> I thought, can Jesus even live in bread like this? And then because I'm not drinking now with my heart, I couldn't even open a bottle. I suppose I could have opened a bottle of wine, but I didn't. The only thing we had to drink was coconut water. And I said, Jesus, can you at least color it red? Can you make it red? He, he didn't. But there was something authentic in that moment where we got on our knees together and we looked at each other and said, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I've acted like an absolute, finish the sentence. And that was just Meryl. <laughs> <laughs> See, when you've been with Jesus, I did too. I had a lot of repenting to do. Because this mouth gets me into trouble all the time. But, but when you've been with Jesus, the fragrance changes, dear friends. Our worship is not singing a few songs. Well, we've got two and a half songs this Sunday. Better be good. I hope they play my favorite. No, it's Jesus, you compel me. Jesus, you captivate me. Jesus, I'm in awe of you. 
I want to be with the bright morning star. I want to be with the beloved son. I want to be with the king of kings. I want to be with the Lord of lords. In between times, what we have is proximity with him. Presence with him. Matthias had been with Jesus. I want to invite you to be with Jesus. You could be a rough, tough, I've got cancer taken out of my nose. It's what happens when you spend your life outdoors. I was a soldier in South Africa. You get too much sun. But in between times, we push into Jesus. The back of my, not this prayer journal, I've got another book for praying proper. This is just devotion. And I've written down 50 names of Jesus. 50. And I just pray my way through that. Oh, Jesus, you are the altogether wonderful. You are the altogether holy one. You are majestic. You are all-powerful. You are almighty. You are the great I am. You are the bread of life. And it's amazing as we speak his name out, how our proximity with him becomes more intimate. In these times, I close. Those of you at the first service know how much or how different it is to that one. I want to invite you into his presence. In your vulnerability, in your shame. Don't be like Adam and Eve who hide in their shame. You push things too far with your boyfriend? Yeah. So did the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery and she lay there naked in the public square. She, they, they didn't clothe her. They were about to stone her. They did not care about her shame. She carried her shame deeply expecting the full weight of judgment to be wrought on her by man and God alike. She looked into the tender hands of the fingers who had written in the sand. The gentle eyes who had rebuked the Pharisees, but in those eyes she found goodness, mercy, kindness, and forgiveness. Where are those who judge you, Jesus said? Oh, so they're not here anymore. Well, go and sin no more. In between times, it's not when we soften our moral code and stretch our boundaries. Where we tuck in close to him as he readies us for the next assignment. Will you pray with me, please? Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. Some of you young people I know, it's like, what on earth does all that mean? Do you understand relationship, don't you? You might not understand those theological precepts, and but you understand intimacy. You want to know if there's someone who will love me just as I am. And you want to know if there's someone who will forgive me when actually my hands are stained by my stupidity. That's Jesus right there. Thank you for this remarkable community. I thank you for their open-hearted generosity and goodness. 
But to each person in the room this morning, they accept the invitation to intimacy. They be honest about their lostness, their limping, or the way in which they are heavily laden by the burden that can't be shrugged. You are the altogether lovely one.